April, Mother's Day is just around the corner. Do you know what you are doing for your mom this year? I sure do. This year, I'm gifting her My Life in a Book, which is this very cool service that will allow her to turn her life stories into a beautiful printed book, complete with her own photos of significant moments in her life. Yes, this is so amazing. And dress listeners, here is how it works. So once a week, mylifeinabook.com will send your mom a question via email. And these can be pre-written questions about her life or any custom questions that you wish to ask. And then your mom can either type her response or she can use their voice to text feature. And mylifeinabook.com compiles all of her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. So join us and check out mylifeinabook.com and use the code DRESSED at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use the code DRESSED for 10% off today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Dressed, the History of Fashion is a production of Dressed Media. With over 8 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed. The History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Welcome, dress listeners, to part three and the conclusion of our series on the fashion history of Barbie, who we have clearly established at this point is so much more than just a plastic (laughs) child's toy. (laughs) And Actually, so much more than the originally promised two episodes, April. Why as we were- <laughs> am I not surprised? Just saying. So in Barbie's 60 plus years, she has become a pop cultural, global, and fashion phenomenon who is both a reflection of any given time within which she lives as much as she is a central part of any number of conversations in that time surrounding identity, representation, gender, race, sexuality, and those conversations, of course, continue into the present day. We concluded Tuesday's episode in the 1980s, which witnessed Barbie's transition from being a doll wearing fashions inspired by contemporary temporary fashion designers to a doll being dressed by many of those same fashion designers, including Oscar de la Renta, who was the first fashion designer to officially license his name and designs to Barbie, and also Billy Boy, who was the first fashion designer to create a limited edition designer Barbie targeting the adult collector's market. And while Billy Boy at the time was reported as the owner of the largest collection of Barbie dolls in the world, he had something like 10,000 Barbies. He was by no means the only one. I found articles mentioning adult Barbie collectors as early as 1979, April, when some of these collectors caught the attention of the New York Times who felt compelled to comment on this rising trend. And this article is kind of funny. It's called Grown Ups with Barbie Babies. (laughs) (laughs) 
And they say more than 2,000 adults are now haunting the garage sales and flea markets looking for the 100 million Barbie family dolls sold over the past 20 years. And the following year, actually in 1980, was the first national Barbie convention, which still continues today, by the way, and is affectionately called BarbieCon. Oh, where where does that where is that held? Is it held in the same place every year? Do you know? I think it's all over, actually. Hmm. Yeah, oh, interesting. I wonder if they ever have one in New York City. I'll go. <laughs> um, but uh, the 1986 Barbie convention similarly prompted an article in the Wall Street Journal citing quote Barbie fetishism among adults is on the rise. Each year, more women and men attend a Barbie convention where they sell and swap Barbie hat boxes, Barbie barbecue sets, and Barbie McDonald's uniforms. A Barbie newsletter has nearly 3,000 subscribers. And in Palo Alto, California, Evelyn Burkhalter regularly conducts tours of her Barbie Hall of Fame, end quote. And this apparently included not only Barbies, but also clothing and accessories numbering into around 14,000 pieces. Wow. <laughs> So the question is, right, had the first generation of children who played with Barbie grown up to still love her? Or was there just something about Barbie that appealed to adult collectors' tastes? And the answer is both these things and more. So one woman is quoted in this article as saying, quote, people are seeing that this is no longer a doll, but a representation of our history. And another woman is quoted as saying a lot of women see in Barbie what they would like to be just like her child counterparts. And as we've already established with Billy Boy, collecting was not exclusive to women. But I have a question for you, Cass. You know, we've also established how millions of Barbies had been produced at this point and collecting, as we know, prizes rarity and speciality. So what exactly were these Barbie collectors collecting? So this is a great question and one addressed in this same 1979 article, which cites collectors as hunting for flaws in dolls. And you actually see this with other collecting hobbies as well. Like my husband collects baseball cards and like the ones with flaws are highly prized for some reason <laughs> because it's these flaws or accidents or oddities in Barbie's production that makes her unique, right? and thus more rare. So for instance, in 1979, some Barbie collectors were looking for quote unquote mutant members of a Barbie that was produced in 1965. She had side parted shoulder length flip style hair and other highly prized collector's items that I read about include everything from, of course, the original number one 1959 Barbie in her original box to a small Barbie compact April to a suitcase for Ken that one collector had been trying to track down for 10 years. <laughs> so at this time, adult collectors are looking for Barbie, but Barbie, and by Barbie, I mean Mattel, was not really yet looking for them or at them, I should say, as a viable market. But that would all change in the 1990s. Despite Billy Boy demonstrating the appeal of adult-geared limited edition Barbies in 1985, Mattel left the adult collector's market otherwise entirely untapped for five years when in 1990 they hired Bob Mackey to create a limited edition gold Barbie who wore a gown of 5,000 hand-sewn sequins and sold for what would be about $300 today. So that's a chunk of change for, for a doll. The Barbie, the Bob Mackey uh, gold Barbie represents the beginning of a 30 plus year relationship between Mackey and Barbie for which Mackey created 47 different dolls, all embodying his signature blend of high fantasy and high glam that he so famously deployed on all of his star clientele. 
And you know that there is a Bob Mackie share Barbie cast, right? (laughs) (laughs) Multiple share Bob Mackie Barbies, actually. In fact, the share of Bob Mackie Barbie was only the first of what would be several Barbie dolls based on Mackie's clients. This includes dolls based on Carol Burnett and also Diana Ross. And Mattel finally created a separate collector's division in 1992, and the honor of designing the inaugural collection of this new division was given to the fashion designer Barbie actually had the longest standing relationship with at this point, and that was, of course, Carol Spencer, who we've mentioned multiple times on the podcast at this point. Carol first joined the in-house Barbie fashion design team in 1963, as you probably remember. So this is almost 30 years later and she was still there. And not only was she the Barbie design team's most senior member at this point, she'd also been pitching the idea of a collector's division to her bosses since 1990. And this is because this is the year she attended her first Barbie convention and saw firsthand that there was a huge market for high quality limited edition Barbie dolls. For the premier doll in the collector's line, Carol says she knew she had to go ultra glamorous. And the result was Benefit Ball Barbie, who debuted in 1992 with a fabulous curly red updo and a one-shouldered sapphire and gold floor-length gown. And not only was Benefit Ball Barbie the first of this new line of collector dolls, she also featured Carol's name on the back of the box, making Benefit Ball Barbie the first Barbie to feature the name of an in-house Barbie design team member. Not as big or as bold as Billy Boys a decade prior, but it was a step forward in bringing well-deserved attention to the designers who had long worked behind the scenes to create Barbie fashions at Mattel. Benefit Ball Barbie. Try saying that six times fast. (laughs) Benefit Ball Barbie sold so well that Carol went on a signing tour across the U.S., another first in Barbie history, and something that Carol actually organized and promoted herself because apparently Mattel executives were a bit skeptical about this. This was entirely new for them. Would people even care about this aspect of Barbie? But they did not remain skeptical for long dress listeners because this signing tour was a huge success. And Carol describes lines going out the door and even being mobbed by her adoring fans. Yes. Uh, And I can attest to this because when she spoke at FIT and was signing books, it was the same case. (laughs) It's amazing. In 1994, Carol was asked to design a limited edition Barbie celebrating the doll's 35th anniversary. The result was the gold Jubilee Barbie who wore a metallic gold brocade jacket over a gold hand beaded gown with pearl accents. And Carol says the doll was the most expensive ever produced for public sale, but we couldn't find exactly how much she sold for. But more importantly, this represents the first time a designer's signature was not just on the box itself, on the doll herself. Yeah. And I just want to say, I don't know how much gold jubilee barbie sold for but i do know that one of the most expensive barbie dolls ever sold was at auction and it sold for three hundred thousand dollars so yeah yeah yeah. but that's secondary market i guess i would be curious about like what was the most expensive barbie doll with its original retail price tag yes that's a good question so carol says of this significant moment of actually having her signature on the doll itself that quote, this felt like a cultural shift within Mattel, an affirmation of an individual designer's contribution to Barbie's success. And Carol really set a precedent here for the visibility of Barbie's in-house design team that continues into the present day. 
And we have access to many of these designers, actually, thanks to their social media accounts, where they often share insights into their work and process. And they all attend BarbieCon, by the way, and Carol really paved the way for that. And it must be said that Carol's contributions to Barbie in the 1990s do not exist only in the exclusive world of luxury limited edition collector stalls. She happens to be the person responsible for the best-selling Barbie of all time, marketed not to adults, but to her original and core audience of children. And of course, we are talking about Totally Hair Barbie. Yes. Carol, <laughs> Carol came up with this concept for the doll who's basically her standout feature was her nearly floor-length crimped hair. And equally of note, of course, is her pattern mini dress. And Carol says, I wanted Barbie's clothes to exude the same sense of fun that her kicky crimped locks would. So I decided to model them on the work of Emilio Pucci, the Italian designer renowned for vibrant graphic prints. And she created this prototype, which is so cool, for this custom print by gluing different graphic shapes onto a mini dress she created. So really a hands-on designer in so many ways. And then this pattern was then adapted into the now iconic pink, lime green, and blue pattern of the dress that caused a sensation. From 1992 to 1995, more than 10 million Totally Hair Barbies were sold April And I can say that I actually was one of those happy customers. I still (laughs) very much remember how her hair feels and actually even how she smells. (laughs) I missed that one. Um, Those years I was in both high school and college. So there's that. Also a huge moneymaker for Mattel, their adult collector's division, which proved to be the fastest growing part of Mattel's business. In 1995, a New York Times article reported that where in 1993, the collector's division was doing around $35 million in annual sales. Two years later, by 1995, that number was over $180 million. Talk about growth. (laughs) (laughs) Mattel had even begun directly trying to convert people to collectors by putting ads in places like Parenting Magazine that played up the Barbie nostalgia factor. A 1996 ad in Parenting Magazine said, over the course of your childhood, you changed your clothes about a million times, introducing Barbie collectibles because you're never too old for Barbie. This collection included recreations of Barbie classic designs, such as Solo in the Spotlight Barbie from 1960. It also included fantastical creations from Bob Mackie, such as his Goddess of the Sun Barbie. And then there was actually something we haven't really seen before in the context of Barbie, and that was fashion historical references in a medieval Barbie and a Rapunzel Barbie. And these dolls actually came to us thanks to Mattel's Great Era series, which was introduced into the Barbie collector's division in 1993 and was intended as a celebration of fashion history's greatest moments and figures, which, of course, we love. Yes. And in her book, Carol talks about how for the fourth division of the collection, she presented the idea of doing a Marie Antoinette Barbie, which when I first read this, I got very excited about and thought that I needed to have it. (laughs) But apparently that was not, that's not going to be a possibility um, because the idea was dismissed by Mattel executives who found Marie Antoinette and the period she lived in as being inappropriate with one executive asking Why would we produce a doll in an era that's all about beheadings? So what did they do instead, Cass? You know where this is going. Um, They went ahead. They they did do a historic doll, but they replaced her with a way less, quote unquote, controversial Barbie, Antebellum Southern Belle. 
Yeah, because apparently romanticizing slavery was a lot more acceptable at that time. Wow. And actually, I do have some good news for you because they did eventually produce a Marie Antoinette Barbie. (gasps) Really? Oh, yes. Oh, I'm looking that up as soon as we're done recording. Yeah, it was really hard for me actually to not just get online and start purchasing Barbies. (laughs) And this might still happen at some point. (laughs) So Carol takes us behind the scenes of the creation of another historic figure. And this is the Empress Sissy Barbie, which debuted in 1996. Empress Sissy was created to honor Empress Elizabeth of Austria, nicknamed Sissy, the 19th century royal who was a walking fashion plate. And Carol reveals that she actually went to LACMA to study portraits and dresses owned by the Empress in person. The resulting Empress Sissy doll wears a diaphanous white tulle gown in the wide crinoline silhouette of the 1850s, 1860s, and represents an amalgam of two known surviving dresses that were that the Empress owned. And Carol's insights in her book are so important because they show us just how much thought and care goes into each and every one of Barbie's designs. So all I have to say is that there is so much fashion and so much fashion history coming from Barbie in the 1990s and moving forward. Yeah, and it is actually within this adult collector's sphere that we keep talking about where we really start to see more and more collaboration with industry fashion designers outside of Barbie's internal team. And let me just tell you, dress listeners, there have been a lot of designer collaborations over the year, many of which, but not all, we will start to recount for you now. Yeah, yeah. Y'all might want to stretch for this one because here we go. In 1995. Barbie partnered with Bloomingdale's department store to produce what would become a series of Barbie dolls celebrating American fashion designers. This is so cool. And many of our listeners may recall from our multiple episodes that we've done that deal with 1990s fashion. These were really pivotal years for American fashion. This is the decade that sees New York solidified as a world fashion center in the 20th century, thanks in part to the increased visibility of New York Fashion Week and the incredible breadth of talent showing their designs under the tents at Bryant Park. So the first Barbie in this Bloomingdale series was designed by American fashion designer Nicole Miller, and it produced an astounding $1 million in sales, which was one third of what her ready to wear line was generating annually at Bloomingdale's. (laughs) Wow. So obviously this collaboration was incredibly successful, so much so that a second Nicole Barbie was produced the following year in 1996, as well as a Donna Karen Barbie dressed in pieces based on Donna's iconic seven easy pieces collection of 1985. Again, one of those Barbies where I'm like, I should probably try to own this because this has to be (laughs) one of my favorite designer Barbies. She's so chic. She has this like oversized black beret. She has a black bodysuit with a black wrap skirt. And then she has this giant red cashmere blanket shawl. And this, of course, this looks completed with gold jewelry, this black fake crocodile belt and bag. And then of course you have a tiny, tiny Bloomingdale's big brown bag. Yes. Just a reminder that you should shop at Bloomingdale's. This same year, we have Barbies from both Ralph Lauren and Calvin Klein. The latter is wearing a matching denim jacket and mini skirt ensemble with a t-shirt emblazoned with a CK emblem, the logo. In fact, there are no less than nine Calvin Klein logos on the doll, which is hilarious. 
four are spelled out and four of them are kind of like logo or initials. And a particular note is the fact that CK is emblazoned at the top of the waistband of Barbie's black cotton underwear, which are peeking out above her skirt. Because we all know <laughs> what happened in the 1990s with those low slung jeans and low slung waistlines, right? Your, your underwear were forever peeking out the top. So um, also interesting in this Barbie is we're seeing designer denim and fashion branding kind of in, in tandem with each other. And these were such big parts of fashion in the 1990s. And then finally, they made their way to Barbie. Oh, and apparently the Barbie um, had highlighted hair. And this uh, her hair highlights were meant to be a tribute to Kate Moss, who is, of course, one of the top models of the era. Yes. And in a New York Times article on the doll, because she needed to have her own article, right? Um, Calvin Klein was interviewed and he made it clear that, quote, the doll was not part of an expansion plan aimed at label conscious third graders. But we know, April, that this would come later. (laughs) (laughs) So Calvin apparently agreed to do the partnership because, quote unquote, Bloomingdale's asked, but also because Bloomingdale's was going to donate some of the proceeds to the Pediatrics AIDS Foundation. Of course, AIDS being another unfortunate reality of 1990s fashion and the world at large. And it was not the only fashion fundraiser of its kind to benefit that specific organization. That same year, designers, including Isaac Mizrahi, Michael Kors, and Carolina Herrera, teamed up with Warner Brothers Studios to create custom designs for one of the studio's most beloved children's characters, Bugs Bunny, with Warner's Brothers making donations to the foundations in those specific designers' names. The Pediatrics AIDS Foundation was founded by a woman by the name of Elizabeth Glazer, who contracted the disease in the 1980s through a blood infusion and unknowingly passed it on to both of her children. Throughout the decade, she became an outspoken child's advocate, AIDS activist, and critic of the Reagan administration's abhorrent response to the pandemic that was sweeping the nation. And sadly, Elizabeth died from the disease in 1994, along with millions of others during those tumultuous years, including, as I've said multiple times, I think on the podcast, my uncle Jay, who was just 32 years old when he passed away of AIDS in 1987. Yeah, so sad. He was such a talented artist, too. Yes. So AIDS swept through the fashion industry and the art world as well. Um, And it must be said that at first, really, fashion turned its back in a lot of ways on its gay creatives. AIDS had been so quickly stigmatized as a quote-unquote gay disease, and so little was known about it that many people chose fear and denial over compassion. But in the 1990s, the industry would join forces to rally around and support the queer community. And you see numerous fundraising events like Suzanne Barch Love Balls, which began in 1989, and also the Council of Fashion Designers of America's Seventh on Sale, which started in 1990. And this was created after an unconscionable number of fashion's brightest stars had died of AIDS. As the CFDA tells us in a 2022 article, back in the 1980s, AIDS generated at least as much dread and anti-science hysteria as corona, which I guess in 2022 we were calling COVID, uh, as much as COVID has done in the past two years. It was a then untreatable illness and a fatal one, for fashion despair was compounded by widespread homophobia, a horrible TikTok of death took hold, end quote. And some of these names are more familiar to us today, 
than others, which I am sure is in part due to their untimely deaths and the subsequent loss of their legacy. So dress listeners, if you hear a name that you don't recognize, you know, maybe do a little bit of research. These people need to be brought back into the light and into fashion history in a more significant way. So the first high profile fashion related death was in 1985 with the loss of fashion designer Chester Weinberg, who at this time was a household name. And this was followed by Perry Ellis in 1986, Willie Smith in 1987, menswear designer Lee Wright, and then an up-and-coming womenswear designer by the name of Isaiah Rankin in 1980. And then in 1990, we of course, we've talked about this on the show, we have the death of first Patrick Kelly and then Halston. And the article continues, I was just mentioning that, quote, it was to say the least a scary time, but raw fear gave way to empathy and courage. Also add to that list people like the illustrator Antonio Lopez and the jewelry designer Tina Chow. So there were so many luminaries of the art and fashion world lost at that time. And this actually does include someone, well, not necessarily part of the fashion world per se, but someone who was very near and dear to the Barbie universe, and that is Ken. And obviously, I'm not referring to the doll here, but rather the person after whom his creator, Ruth Handler, named the doll, her son, Kenneth, who was, by all accounts, a gay man, even though he was married and did have children. And this was not a terribly uncommon story in history. No, no, it's not. And, you know, this really makes the release of Mattel's Gay Ken doll the year prior all the more significant, or is the word poignant? I'm not entirely sure. And I actually want to thank Diane from our recent Dressed Fashion History Tour of Paris for directing me to Gay Ken because I had no idea. And to be fair, he wasn't marketed as gay kin. He was marketed as earring magic kin. And he certainly wasn't based on the real kin, Kenneth Handler, whose sexuality was not known at this time. But for the millions of gay men who reportedly purchased earring magic kin, <laughs> there was no mistaking a kindred spirit. And we have his wardrobe to thank for it. And maybe a little help from out and proud journalist Dan Savage, who declared in the title of his 1993 article on the topic, Ken comes out. Barbie's boyfriend sports a cock ring. And more on that after a brief sponsor break. Dress listeners, whatever your reason for wanting to learn a new language, whether it's an upcoming international adventure, communicating with your friends and family abroad, or even professional purposes, Rosetta Stone has got you covered. As the trusted expert in language learning for 30 years now, you can join millions of Rosetta Stone users to learn any of the 25 languages offered. That includes Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, and so many more. And this is fast language acquisition, friends. There are no English translations, so you learn to speak Listen and think in your new language. And right now you can get lifetime access to all 25 of Rosetta Stone's language courses for 50% off. That's language learning for 25 languages for the rest of your life, which Cass is frankly amazing. It is. And what are you waiting for, dress listeners? Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, dress listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. 
Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Dress listeners, if you suffer from seasonal allergies like me, Astapro is your new go-to. It has been super helpful to me this spring as it bursts into full bloom. And that's because Astapro is the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter solution for nasal allergy symptoms. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray, and Astapro delivers full prescription strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, running an itchy nose, and sneezing. You too can get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief like I have with Astapro. It gets me back in the game, ready to record the show for all of you. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can Astapro and go today. That's A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Menopause, perimenopause, these can be some of the most uncomfortable phases of a woman's life. If you find yourself in either of these, well, Hormone Harmony is here for you. Hormone Harmony capsules contain science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. And that means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it really shows. And get this. Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any woman with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it. But it is perfect for those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. And for a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use the code DRESSED at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use the code DRESSED for 15% off today. Welcome back, dress listeners. You really didn't think that we would be ignoring Barbie's queer fashion history, did you? (laughs) So um, pertaining to the article that Cass previously mentioned, Dan Savage interviewed Mattel's Lisa McKendall about Ken's new look. And my guess is that she probably did not know where his line of question was about to go. (laughs) Um, She told him that the doll was created at the request of a children's focus group who wanted Ken to get a more cool updated look and apparently nothing was more cool than a purple faux leather vest a purple mesh shirt black jeans and shoes yes but it's actually not his clothes that garnered Dan and other gay men's affections and attention but rather his jewelry or rather one piece of his jewelry in particular because in addition to his magic earring and I believe he just had the one that earned him his official name was a silver necklace with a ring which had an uncanny resemblance to a certain aforementioned sex toy. And this is how Earring Magic Kind earned his subsequent Wikipedia page, his place on the most controversial Barbie in history lists, and his other names, because Earring Magic Kind will also forever be known as Gay Ken and or Cock Ring Ken. <laughs> Love this so much. <laughs> and before you say, how in the hell was Barbie marketing a sex toy doll to children? The answer is they weren't, at least not intentionally. So Mattel's spokeswoman, Lisa McKendall, rightfully balked at Savage's questions that somehow this was intentional. She said, quote, 
absolutely not. It's a necklace. It holds charms that he can share with Barbie. Come on. This is a doll designed for little girls. Something like that would be entirely inappropriate. And of course it would be agreed. But as Dan so brilliantly points out in his article, Mattel did in fact present children with a gay Ken. They just didn't know that they were doing it. (laughs) So as Lisa goes on to tell Dan, quote, Ken and Barbie both reflect mainstream society, reflect what little girls see in their world, what they see their dads, brothers, and uncles wearing, they want Ken to wear. But as Dan so aptly and brilliantly points out, quote, how many dads out there are running around with cock rings dangling from chains around their necks, which he also goes into kind of a history of how this is a staple of gay men's club wear at this time. And how many, he goes on to say, how many mesh shirts does international male sell to the Junes and wards of our great nation? What the little girls were seeing and telling Mattel was cool wasn't what their relations were wearing unless they had hip queer relatives, but the homoerotic fashions and imagery they were seeing on MTV, what they saw Madonna's dancers wearing in her concerts and films. And he points out that queer people and queer culture had become visible on TV and in popular culture in a way that just had not existed previously. Quote, suddenly it's hip to be queer. The little girls of our great nation wanted a hipper kin and Mattel gave them a hip kid, a queer kid. He continues, quote, queer Ken is the high watermark of, depending on your point of view, either queer infiltration of popular culture or the thoughtless appropriation of queer culture by heterosexuals. Queer imagery has so permeated our culture that from rock stars, think about Axl Rose here and his leather chaps, to toy designers, mainstream America isn't even aware when it's adopting queer fashions and mores. Or when it's putting cock rings, even little plastic ones, into the hands of little girls. So let that sink in, right? Yes. And I mean, obviously, this is a tale as old as time, right? But this article actually blew my mind because Dan is absolutely right. And as he points out, this is not unique to Ken by any means. Queer culture, especially fashion and beauty culture, has been appropriated time and time again historically, intentionally or not. So much so that Mattel inadvertently marketed a very adult-themed doll to children. The doll, of course, was pulled from shelves after six months, but not before reportedly millions of dolls were purchased by an unintentionally targeted and unexpected customer base, and it's actually rumored to be the best-selling Barbie of all time. Not that Mattel is ever going to tell us. (laughs) But were gay men really an unexpected customer base? Let's be honest. Well, Earring Magic Ken might have become an accidental gay icon, Barbie has always been one. There are countless stories of queer children playing with Barbies growing up or dreaming of playing with her, but were prevented from it because of strict societal gender codes. And this includes people like Isaac Mizrahi and Eve Saint Laurent, who credit Barbie with piquing their interest in fashion, and they are by no means alone. And these are just two of the numerous queer fashion designers in and out of house at Mattel that have dressed and continue to dress Barbie into today. And really today is a period where Barbie and Mattel have emerged as unapologetic vocal allies of the LGBTQ plus community. And this is not new. It was a relationship that really started to emerge, at least publicly in the 1990s. In 1998, 1999, limited edition Life Ball Barbie dolls were produced in collaboration with Vivian Westwood and Christian McQuaw, respectively, to benefit the Life Ball Foundation, a foundation that funded AIDS research. 
Other designers to do life ball Barbies included Valentino, who in 2005 created a Julia Roberts Barbie, commemorating her 2001 Academy Award win. And of course, we all remember that unforgettable black and white Valentino gown that she wore that year. Similarly, Jason Wu created a life ball Barbie in 2009. And these dolls are covetable collector's items today, fetching thousands of dollars on the resale market. But most importantly, these collaborations supported AIDS research, something that is especially significant in light of the recent announcements of people actually being cured of AIDS, Cass. This is really inspiring. Oh, yeah. Really inspiring and so incredible after so many, many decades, right? Mm -hmm. So speaking of the numerous designers who have designed for Barbie April, we have only begun to cover them, but we cannot move on from the 1990s without addressing some significant moments in Barbie fashion history. And trust listeners, you heard us singing the praises of Alexandra Sampson's recent 1997 Fashion Big Bang exhibition. And that also happened to be a big year for Barbie. So 1997 is a year that saw designer Barbies produced in collaboration with Anne Klein, Bill Blass, Vera Wang, and Byron Lars. And the press was especially excited about Lars because he actually signed a deal to create not one, but multiple Black Barbies. And this is a relationship that would extend until 2011 and result in 16 different Barbies. In a recent video on his Instagram, which is at in earnest official. A clearly emotional Lars reflects on his 15-year partnership with Mattel, including what his dolls meant to the Black women who collected them and the Barbie that he was most proud of. This was his creation of the M.B. Lee doll, the second in his Treasures of Africa series that he says was, quote, the darkest Barbie doll on record at the time. And he points out that there have been many more since then, of course. Other Black designers to design for Barbie include Stephen Burroughs and most recently fashion stylist and Emmy-winning costume designer Zarina Akers, who produced a series of chic streetwear looks um, in celebration of Black History Month. And while so far this episode, we've really been focusing primarily on American designers, Barbie's high fashion wardrobe coming out of the 1990s was not exclusive to them. Because when we say everyone who was anyone designed for Barbie, we mean everyone, or at least it would appear that way. And in 1995, you also have the first collaboration between the House of Christian Dior, then helmed by Gianfranco Ferre and Barbie. Barbie wears this like insane beaded brocade evening gown. And Dior collaborated again in 1997, commemorating the 50th anniversary of the House of Dior with a Barbie wearing Dior's iconic bar suit, which is amazing. I have seen these online and, and it's they're really terrific. And again, add that to the list of Barbies that I want to collect. <laughs> In 1998, you have Barbies from Oscar de la Renta again and Vera Wang, the first of four Barbies from Wang. And actually just last year, Wang became a Barbie herself as part of Barbie's tribute collection created to celebrate trailblazing women who have shaped and impacted culture. And Barbie celebrated her 40th birthday in 1999. And on this special occasion, the U.S. Postal Service even released a Barbie stamp. And for their part, Mattel feted Barbie with a gala event held in her honor at the Waldorf Astoria with Dick Clark as the master of ceremonies. And this event even included a live performance by Brandy, who got her own Barbie that year, by the way, with fashions designed by Lavinia Kitty Perkins. And there was also a fashion show that included Barbie's iconic looks over the years worn by live models. 
And we should mention that present at this particular event was one very important guest to whom Barbie owes her entire existence, Ruth Handler. Yes, friends, Ruth and Mattel had actually mended their relationship a few years prior on the occasion of Barbie's 35th anniversary in 1994. And this was largely in thanks to the company's new CEO, Jill Barad, who recognized Ruth's seismic role in not only Barbie and Mattel's success, but her own. And that is because Ruth really paved the way for women to come into these high power business positions that extended, you know, in Mattel and beyond. And we are so happy to learn Ruth and Mattel were able to mend their relationship before she passed away in 2002. A reminder of the mortality of the very real people central to the creation of an arguably immortal doll. So before heading into the new millennia, Barbie finally added the profession of fashion designer to her impressive (laughs) resume in 1998. And this was the same year that the longest standing fashion designer of her clothes, Carol Spencer, retired after 35 years, 8 months, and 28 days. And in honor of her incredible contribution, Mattel presented Carol with a Barbie in her likeness. And it was an honor done for only one other woman before her, and that was Barbie's original fashion designer, Charlotte Johnson. The 1990s is also the period when Bill Greening, Kimberly Colmone, and Robert Best were hired into the in-house Barbie fashion design team. Robert designed for both Isaac Mizrahi and Donna Karen before starting at Mattel in 1995 and was then followed by Bill, a Barbie collector turned designer, and Kimberly in 1999. And they've moved into different specific roles um, working with Barbie, but they are all still there at Mattel. They're still working on Barbie, but, you know, they're still there. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. yeah. (laughs) They got promotions. I guess that's my long-winded way of saying that. (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, I just love that because you really see over these two episodes that people come to design for Barbie and they stay. Mm -hmm. And that really speaks to a work culture there that has been built around Barbie since day one, right? From Charlotte Johnson to Carol Spencer to Lavinia Black Perkins to Robert, Kim, and Bill, people come to Barbie Dreamhouse and they never want to leave. It is Robert, Bill, and Kimberly and their teams, of course, who are responsible for carrying Barbie's high fashion status into the 21st century, where she only continued to develop her relationship with contemporary fashion designers. Hana'i Mori kicks off the decade with her designer Barbie in 2000. And continuing in chronological order, we also see collabs with Burberry, Paul Frank, Versace, Badgley Mystica, Carolina Herrera, Judith Lieber, Cynthia Rowley, Diane von Furstenberg, of course, modeling one of her iconic wrap dresses in an appropriately Barbie pink version. We also have Zach Posen cast, and Zach's doll came out in 2006, which is really fun because it is a Zach Posen Barbie and Ken doll featuring Ken as Zach Posen or Zach Posen <laughs> as Ken. You also have Barbies from Kimora Lee Simmons and her likeness, as well as a designer Barbie from famed hair magnet Vidal Sassoon. And in 2009, you have Jingle Flowers, Ray Kabokubo Come to Garçon Barbie doll and a brightly colored signature Come to Garçon floral print. So we just want to give a special shout out to blogger Barbie List Holland for breaking down 
all these fashion designer doll Barbies for us. Thank you. Yes. And I'm actually going to put a link in our show notes because this is quite an extensive list and she has done it all in chronological order and she has pictures of everything. So, so be ready to have a really fun time doing that. So 2009 is a significant year. Of course, it's actually Barbie's 50th birthday. And in celebration, Mattel turned to Christian Louboutin for a year long collaboration which would extend to redesigning not only Barbie's wardrobe and her physical features, but of course, there would be no Louboutin without Louboutin shoes. Again, one of those things that I just have to collect because they're teeny tiny little Louboutins in a Louboutin box. It's ridiculously adorable and amazing. (laughs) Uh, And Mattel's then senior vice president of marketing, Stephanie Cota, told Women's Wear Daily that year that, quote, it was a natural for Barbie, not only with her fashion heritage, but also because of her passion for shoes. She has a billion shoes and we needed to do something special for her shoe collection. And she actually meant that literally. At this point, it was estimated that one billion shoes had been produced for Barbie. Wow. So in celebration for her 50th birthday, Barbie also made her first New York Fashion Week debut, partnering with the CFDA to call upon America's top designers to create custom looks for the doll, something that we should be very used to at this point in our story. But something entirely new to the story was Barbie's presence in Vogue. 2009 was the same year that Vogue Italia celebrated the history of Black Barbie with the first ever Black issue conceived by editor-in-chief Franco Sozzani. The issue was intended to broadcast a strong message to the fashion industry about the need for diversity, something Barbie herself had made great strides in at this point. And this is just another example of how the relationship between Barbie and fashion goes both ways. She is both reflective of and also influences high fashion and pop culture. Ask not what fashion can do for Barbie, but what Barbie (laughs) can do for fashion. (laughs) Barbie's impact on fashion and wider culture is undeniable. And in 2014, Barbie expanded that impact by adding social media influencer to her expansive resume with the creation of her Instagram account at Barbie style, which currently touts 2.4 million followers, by the way. This is also the year that she was on the cover of Sports Illustrated Magazine Swimsuit Edition, just saying, (laughs) and the same year that Jeremy Scott dedicated his entire spring-summer collection for Moschino to Barbie, telling Vogue's Nicole Phelps backstage after the show, like every girl and gay boy, I loved Barbie. It's hard not to. She's practically perfect. And he goes on to say, her and I share the same things. We just want to bring joy to people. But Nicole could not help herself from pointing out something in her article that has plagued Barbie for her entire existence, writing, quote, we could problematize Barbie and her preposterous measurements. And just a side note here, if she were human, she would have about a 36 inch bust, Mm. an 18 inch waist and 33 inch hips. These are pretty impossible proportions. She goes on to say, we could bring up the body image debate that roils around her hotter than ever 55 years after she was invented. But who wants to be the lone sourpuss when everyone else seems to be having such a good time? End quote. (laughs) But something I found really interesting about this article is that it seems to be entirely lost on Nicole. And this is the fact that this same body image debate that she's talking about with Barbie can and should be applied to the very real models on Moschino's runway. You know, all of these models, while racially diverse, were all thin, 
and thus representative of projecting those same body standards Barbie has been accused of. Fashion like Barbie or Barbie-like fashion has always had a diversity problem in a number of ways um, because it exists within the world of presenting and shaping societal beauty, which have overwhelmingly been white and thin beauty standards. And that, of course, is something fashion is still grappling with today. And something Mattel finally addressed after years of declining sales. And after conducting extensive surveys and market research to determine why, the company finally had to face the fact that this was a real problem for their consumers who wanted more body diversity in the dolls that their children played with. And that is why in 2016, a newly voluptuous Barbie made history, gracing the cover of Time magazine, appearing next to the title question, now, can we stop talking about my body? The answer is no. (laughs) (laughs) we're still talking about it right now (laughs) yes but the cover story came in response to Mattel's dramatic restructuring of the Barbie line and the introduction of three new body types that included curvy tall and petite for the first time ever in its history and Mattel's representation rollout does not stop there both Barbie and Ken doll now range in different skin tones hair textures and body size there are Barbies with hearing aids prosthetics and wheelchairs and the first Barbie with Down syndrome just debuted this year. As the company website tells us, Mattel is, quote, committed to doing the work to inspire the next generation. This commitment is reflected in Barbie's various collections for adults and children alike that celebrate extraordinary women historically and today, celebrity and non-celebrity alike, like the Barbie Sheroes collections, the Dream Gap Project, and the Inspiring Women series, which features inspiring women throughout history and today, including everyone from pandemic nurses and doctors to culture makers and shakers like Jane Goodall, Maya Angelou, Naomi Osaka, and most recently, Chinese-American actress Anna Mae Wong, the groundbreaking female aviator Bessie Coleman, and especially of interest to us fashion history lovers, Black beauty magnet Madam C.J. Walker. And the uh, Madam C.J. Walker doll was in collaboration with Walker's great-great-granddaughter. And this representation extends to the designers working with Barbie both in and outside of Mattel. For both her Barbie celebrating Chinese fashion and heritage, Chinese designer Guo Pei worked with Barbie in-house designer Joyce Chen, who herself has created numerous Lunar New Year Barbies and has said that I love that I can bring a part of my life and culture into Barbie to create more Asian representation. Similarly, Carlisle Nora, the lead designer for the Barbie Signature Collections line, who is Filipino-American, has also been front and center in bringing more diversity and representation to Barbie. He's designed over 100 Barbies, including the Mutya Barbie, who was inspired by his mother and their collective Philippine heritage because she's wearing the distinctive Philippine Tierno silhouette. In a recent interview with the journal In the Heart Stories, Carlisle reflected on Barbie's evolving relationship with fashion and representation. He said, quote, Barbie has always reflected the times. And in the nine years I've been designing for her, I've been honored to be part of that. As Barbie designers, we pay attention to trends and not just in fashion, but evolution in terms of representation and society too. So in addition to representing what clothing real people are wearing, Barbie's representing the real people wearing the clothing, end quote. And he goes on to say, every doll that I design comes with this, the idea of diversity, idea of representation, and how can this doll make somebody feel seen and represented, all different types of people. 
And that is why plus size model Ashley Graham has a Barbie. That is why groundbreaking trans actress Laverne Cox has a Barbie. I mean, the list really goes on. Representation in front of and behind the scenes of Barbie is arguably now a cornerstone of the Barbie brand and something we should absolutely give them credit for. But Barbie is first and foremost a brand, and that comes with the good and the bad, especially when it comes to Barbie's carbon footprint. I mean, as we've established on the show, billions upon billions of Barbies and Barbie accessories have been produced at this point, and they show no sign of stopping. <laughs> especially after this movie. Yeah. <laughs> and just like in fashion, we all know the ethics or lack thereof um, of overseas manufacturing. So it must be said that Barbie Mattel has an answer for that. They do have a goal of 100% recycled, recyclable, or bio-based plastic materials in both their products and packaging by the year 2030. But that does not account for licensing. What about the millions, if not billions, of crap products created to hype the recent Barbie film, as I just referenced? They have also started doing partnerships with fast fashion brands like Zara. And you all, if you listen to this show, you already know how we feel about that. And that takes us right back to where we started this podcast Barbie series, right, April? And that is with our discussion about the Barbie paradox. How could one doll be so singularly important and equally problematic? And it is because, as we keep saying time and time again, Barbie is so much more than a child's toy. She transcended that category the very minute she was put out into the world in 1959, when she captured the imagination and fascination of not just the children she was initially marketed to, but their adult counterparts. And Barbie means so many different things to so many different people, and they are as varied as the billions of Barbie incarnations that exist themselves. And unlike a real-life breathing fashion icon, she can actually be all of these things. She can be a fashion icon and a doctor. <laughs> she can at once be the object of a child's affections and validation for an adult like Ashley Graham, who never saw a Barbie who looked like her growing up, or for Laverne Cox, who was never allowed to play with one. Barbie has undeniably made an impact on the world, and the world has made an impact upon her. She has always been a reflection of the world in which she lives, but most importantly, the children and adults who have projected their dreams onto her. And this was the original intention of Barbie's creator, Ruth Handler, oh so many years ago. Yeah, and at the end of the day, I think what matters most, dress listeners, is what Barbie means to you. And as Carol Spencer tells us in her book, quote, any Barbie fan or collector will tell you that you never really leave Barbie, and she never really leaves you. She was my muse for years, but for those who grew up with her or who discovered her later in life, she'll occupy a special place in your heart no matter how old you get. And that's true for me, and I bet it's true for many of our dress listeners. So on that note, we are finally concluding our series on Barbie <laughs> before I go on to make this this an entire podcast in and of itself. And I really hope you enjoyed learning about Barbie's fashion history as much as I enjoyed researching and writing about it. So until next time, dress listeners, may you consider what Barbie means to you next time you get dressed. And just a small interjection here. Um, does this now mean that I can go see the Barbie movie? Because I have literally been waiting until we were done <laughs> with the Barbie series. I didn't I didn't want it to be influenced in any way or interject about the film, but but I think that I think I might go tomorrow morning if there's morning <laughs> showings. Get out your pink Just jumpsuit, April. <laughs> 
Dress listeners, as always, we love hearing from you. So if you would like to write to us, you can do so at hello at dressedhistory.com. You can also send us some DMs on our Instagram, which is at dressed underscore podcast. You will, of course, find accompanying images and reels for each week's episodes there. And if you want to find the ones uh, specifically for our Barbie content, you can check out the hashtag dressed 309, dressed 310, or dressed 311. So that's just hashtag dress and either the numbers 309, 310, 311. Those are the episode numbers. Also, if you love the show and don't like the ads, you can now subscribe to listen to the show ad free. Check out our show notes or also our link tree on our Instagram. And there is a button there for just $3 a month. You can for just $3 a month, you can subscribe to our exclusive content, which is the ad free version of dressed. Thank you as always, and more dress coming your way on Tuesday. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of Dress Media. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.